This conversation was recorded on the 2nd of June and is with Dr. Heidi Castaneda, a professor of anthropology at the University of South Florida. In this discussion, we touch on the biggest issues in legal anthropology and how she applies these to her research on migrant health issues. This includes discussing her latest book, released last year called Borders of Belonging, Struggle and Solidarity in Mixed Status Immigrant Families. When the conversation starts, we are talking about the protests surrounding the George Floyd murder and how many of the economic and political issues around the world, while pre-existing before this current social moment, presents a unique product when combined with concerns surrounding COVID-19. So um, how is everything? How's everything been during the quarantine? I know it's been a few months now. It's been a trying time, I think, uh, especially over the last week. We've had an extra layer of anxiety and uh, anger and isolation that's come to the forefront. So I think that's really, um, it's been a remarkable time, 2020. Right. Say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How um how do you think it's affected um because your research in like migrant health and um like your last book, uh, Borders of Belonging, talking about more about illegality and the you know the vulnerabilities experienced by migrants and um I don't know if you've been in contact with like some of your former participants and seeing like what this transition has been like for them or if you can kind of think about some of the things that the vulnerabilities that they already had now adding this extra or these extra layers on top of it, what's that look like for your research? Yeah, it's pretty, it's been, it's been, um, it's certainly been an extension of the original project in many ways. So I do stay in touch with a lot of participants. I would say probably the majority, um, usually via social media, especially. So in the book, I, t- I uh, talk about the experiences of 100 families, and that ends up being you know, more than one person per family. So it's, it's actually hundreds of individuals, but if you think of them as family units, there's about 100 families. And I would say I'm in touch with you know, probably at least half of them still uh, via social media. And um, yeah, it's been interesting to sort of follow them um, over the years in general, but also in the last months and to see how things are changing for them and sort of the new things that are sort of emerging, arising, um, linked to undocumented status, linked to being in a mixed status family. Um, And then again, over the past week, just just sort of new efforts at sort of regrouping and thinking about solidarity uh, between different kinds of movements. So yeah, yeah. So, you know, how have mixed status families been impacted uh, with the, COVID-19 pandemic and especially with the um, lockdowns and quarantines and isolation that came with it. I think, you know, the really mixed status families in some have been hit the hardest. Um, These are immigrant workers who don't have protections on the job. Um, So they're working in the fields or in the factories. And as we know, there's been a lot of uh, concern about outbreaks in those kinds of settings. In addition, they don't have the luxury of staying at home. Uh, They don't have that privilege to stay at home and to not um, put others in their household at risk. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, they don't have any workplace protections like um, unemployment insurance. And then they don't have access to the federal programs like the CARES Act that came out. So that's been a really big struggle financially for a lot of families. So it's kind of hitting them on multiple levels. So they have these financial stressors either of um, if they have to stay home, which for many of them, their hours have been cut, 
um, or they, they've been told to stay home. So they're not working. Um, and if they're not working, they don't have access to alternative forms of income. If they are working, they worry about risks on the job and then bringing those risks home to their family members. Um, and then, of course, there's all these systemic structural issues around not having access to health care, even if you were to get sick. So it's, it's really hit them on every level. Um, and then on top of that, you kind of layer the mental and emotional health concerns that come with being apart from family, um, whether that's transnational family or just being you know, away from people in other parts of the country. Mm. So it's really put a lot of stress on them. So I've talked to a lot of young adults um, recently since they tend to be pretty vocal on social media in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. And, um, you know, they talk about like, even if they're U.S. citizens and, you know, the book really is about how, just to kind of step back a minute, the book really is about how being in a mixed status family, regardless of your own status, is going to affect you in some way. It's not always a negative way, but you're going to have some spillover effects of undocumentedness, of, of illegality on everybody in the household. And so just to give an example, I've talked to, to people who are U.S. citizens who are you know, greatly affected by the fact that their immigrant parents or undocumented parents either can't work or have to work in this environment with the pandemic. So the, it weighs on them pretty heavily, even though the, they themselves may not be affected. Um, as I said, there's like, uh, you know, people with DACA or people who are undocumented families weren't eligible for um, the federal relief under the CARES Act. But then you also see other, you know, sort of positive signs like some, some um, I've heard of some universities actually just depositing money in undocumented students' accounts. Um, wow. one, one person I just talked to yesterday said that her university recognized the struggles that undocumented students have. And everybody in their university who is listed as a DACA recipient just got this blanket $1,500 deposit in their student account wow. just to help them out. So the university, and this is a private university with endowment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the university decided to help them out in that way. And then you also see things like uh, the state of California has been pretty good at providing types of relief and access to health care for anyone, regardless of legal status and including financial relief. So you do see you do see some rays of of, you know, progressive thinking in this area. But for the most part, you know, these really are the most vulnerable families. Right. So, and even in those yeah. cases, it's like. I guess private universities are other entities are doing it. It's not like codified within like U.S. law to help anyone other than like citizens and even in some ways barely that. I mean, I know we had the, yeah. the $1,200 checks people mm -hmm. got with, uh, you know, the first round of like stim stimulus package. But right. since then, it's kind of been like everything opened up because there was like a limit on the, I guess, the uh, liability the government maybe wanted to take on by maintaining that quarantine yeah and, sure sure yeah. i mean i have a lot to say about that first of all i will say that yeah. that stimulus check came with uh, um, a letter in the mail signed by the president to sort of mm -hmm. highlight the fact in an election year that it was um to reflect on his uh goodwill uh, which right. i thought was pretty pretty marked uh, another thing I would say is, you know, relying on efforts of private organizations, whether it's universities or, you know, NGOs or civil society in general, um, is, an, is, a, is an old tactic uh, to let government not feel responsible for certain populations. So while it's great that the donors to a certain private university step up or that, you know, NGOs offer healthcare services free of charge to undocumented persons, you know, on the, the, the 
dark side of that is it relieves the state of any responsibility for those populations yeah. and it allows things the status quo to continue so um you know i certainly want to wouldn't suggest that that um they don't do that but on the other hand you know those kinds of efforts are always covering up a larger responsibility in society right. i think yeah 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 that's so um, true yeah, and then there was something else you said at the end there that I was going to comment on, but I forgot. I'll think about it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, do you see, um, or in what way do you see, like, the quarantining linked with the protests now and sort of the, because, you know, black men have been shot mm-hmm. before in the back even, and that's been caught on video, and... Yeah. Um, like we've never had like this level of a response. And I know on one level, you know, everything's now recorded. So maybe that's a mm-hmm. level to it. But like, I, I wonder if just people being in quarantine and on the heels of that quarantine, this happened almost immediately after. It's like, I wonder if that sort of exacerbates it. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think I was trying to put it into words earlier this morning. I think there's an anxiety that came with the pandemic. There's anxiety in the sense of uncertainty. There's a massive uncertainty. Again, it's an election year. You've got this, um, you know, unprecedented pandemic that makes us all come together in certain ways, but also isolates us in other ways, um, socially and politically and economically. And so I think people, you know, I think there were a few weeks, maybe even two months where people were willing to sort of um, come together as a society, come together to stay apart, right? So to come together and be part of this project of stay at home. Uh, but that's that's gone on too far for many people and there's more unrest and anxiety. And I think especially for young adults who've been cooped up at home, you know, getting outside has been, um, has been tempting and you can't really blame people at this point. But uh, I think the larger social issue here is, yeah, there's, there's this underlying anxiety, isolation, and quite frankly, like mass social depression. I think, I think Mm. there's a lot of mental health concerns on an individual, but also on a collective level that we're seeing. And then you introduce something like this, um, which I mean, True. In some ways it's unprecedented, but in some ways it's not, right? I mean, I, I would disagree. I think there have been huge riots like this before in the 90s um, that required the National Guard and, and you know, massive militarization yeah. um, of the police. And you also have had other incidents, even if you think to the Trayvon Martin case where people use cell phones and, right. um, you know, I think... I think there's definitely something to the fact that this happens all the time. We just don't usually have the video of it. This mm-hmm. isn't the first or last time that we have a video. Um, but I think taken all together with the isolation and anxiety people have been feeling during the pandemic, yeah, it's made it much worse. Right. Um, I think people have also had something different to focus on for a couple of weeks. And then this just mm-hmm. highlights this underlying inequality that we all sort of know is there. Uh, we don't have to be a scholar to know that's mm-hmm. there. Um, I mean, even the pandemic, more and more people were reporting on its, in a, you know, its, its disproportionate impacts on black and brown populations. And I think as that came to the forefront more and more, and we knew more people who were being affected by it, um, and the statistics were becoming more and more clear, you know, it really kind of opened the door for, for anger um, when it comes to other types of oppression, like mm-hmm. um, with police violence. Right. And then... The case of the people that I work with, uh, people in the book, for example, 
you know, they have a longstanding recognition that there's a connection here between um, police violence and immigration enforcement. And so there's a lot of sympathy, I think, for what's going on. Um, and certainly um, there's been some effort to kind of, like I said, join those movements or find ways to help, um, mm. which is difficult, right? For undocumented folks, it's hard to join a protest because they themselves are deportable. And so mm -hmm. they have to find alternative ways of expressing um, rebellion and protest and solidarity. And, and they're doing that. They're certainly doing that. Um, but I think it's opened up some really interesting conversations. Right. Something that you've touched on a few times, both within your research and even in the current uh, situation with the protests and everything is how there's this structure, but also like people are having all these emotions and like health is all these different things like physical, like you have people who are putting themselves out there, like you said, undocumented individuals who ultimately don't have the luxury or they they still have to go out there and put themselves at risk of contracting potentially COVID. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, they're also experiencing these like emotional, mental issues that comes with being vulnerable and maybe having the stress. And it, it's, I don't know how that feeds into the sort of how you, approach anthropology and anthropological research and you've sort of touched on all these different things that um i don't know if you could speak to on how you sort of draw them all together yeah i mean I, I guess i'll maybe start by saying i just saw um uh, a colleague of mine african-american professor who wrote um i'm tired of being resilient you know mm. and i think that kind of encapsulates this this um tension between as anthropologists, we have to understand communities' vulnerabilities and also highlight their resiliency and their and their forms of solidarity. And um, that's what I try to do in the book. I mean, the, the subtitle is "Struggle and Solidarity." I wanted to make sure that I didn't portray people in the book as victims, even though they clearly are at the at the mercy of awful social policies. I didn't want them to read it and read it as if I saw them as victims. I wanted them to read it and say despite all these circumstances, we have some strategies and some ways of coming together and some solutions. Um, and, you know, maybe they're not perfect and maybe they're not long-term, but we, we get through life and we don't need you to feel pity for us. Mm -hmm. Right. I really wanted them to read it in that way. And, and it was really important to me to send out copies of the book to as many participants as possible, which is what I did because I wanted them to read it and I wanted them to, to be okay. I mean, when I wrote it, I wanted them to be okay with it. Um, the point being, um, we do have to highlight solidarity and resiliency in these things, but at the same time, it's exhausting. It's exhausting for people, and it weighs even more on people's mental health, um, regardless if you're an immigrant or a person of color or both. Um, you know, it's a it's a daily source of stress, um, even when mm -hmm. it's a positive stress. Even if you're coming together and and fighting for justice and um, showing solidarity with people in your community, even that is it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work right. for people, and that weighs heavily on their on their on their mental, physical, and emotional health. Yeah, definitely. I, the sort of being tired of being resilient. I think that was really powerful because it. I think it goes after this notion of like. It it almost shows how, it's this thing that's always, done and put forward, and you know people having to be resilient, but it's almost like it's necessary to do it and it's it's almost like there's no progress in the grand scheme of it it's like mm -hmm. resiliency is all you sort of have in the now and it's not translating into some like i don't know bigger transformation that maybe you don't have to be resilient anymore 
it's just like this yeah weird sort of uh yeah like in between state of always just being resilient and if you're not resilient then maybe you know things don't get done or thought about or talked sure. about as much as they otherwise would yeah no and it's true i mean i think in some ways resiliency is is also convenient for people who uh, don't have that population's best interests at stake right the fact that they can persist and survive um nonetheless nevertheless i yeah. think is um is convenient in some ways just like uh what i said earlier about uh, private organizations or nonprofits coming in and, and picking up the bill that the government won't pay right mm -hmm. i think it's a very similar process where is you know as long as people aren't dying in the streets and that's a terrible thing to say right now because they are hmm. but unless we see you know mass tragedy life kind of just goes on right life right. goes on there's mechanisms that sort of pick up um a lot of the damage and i think that's kind of what's going on too and and so some of that those mechanisms are weighing on people's bodies they're they're mm. they're that resiliency is in people's physical spiritual bodies and that that's it's heavy it's really heavy yeah. yeah yeah it is and um right now like you said earlier like we're in an election year and i wonder to what extent like you know people are feeling sort of the stress of what the next four years are going to look like and whether it's under another Trump uh, presidency or whether it's under a Biden presidency. And yeah, it, it's, it's interesting yeah. to see how all of these things are sort of, maybe they're a perfect storm of things coming and coalescing in the same year. And I don't know what it's been like for you sort of, sort of transitioning everything in the school year and what's that's meant for your sort of anthropological lens and research and academic career. I'm still sorting that out. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think there, I think there are some positives here. I think that we have seen that certain things can be done remotely. I think mm -hmm. that's a benefit to people with uh, accessibility issues. I think that's a benefit right. for people who are parents. I think there's, um, you know, that old saying that this could have been an email. Uh, now we know this could have been a Zoom meeting, right? Yeah. Um, so maybe we don't need to get in our cars and drive 20 miles to work every day, right? Maybe there are things that we can more efficiently do remotely. Um, so, I, there, you know, there's some positive things, I think, that are coming from that. And I think people's reliance or expectation of travel has changed. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I'm, I travel is still my guilty pleasure, and I know that I rack up those... Um, Mm -hmm. carbon footprint miles on the airplanes all the time. But uh, for many people, they've shifted to thinking about vacation using, you know, alternative um, ways. So, I mean, just our ideas of travel and the necessity of that carbon footprint has changed quite a bit, I think, in the past two or three months. But on the other hand, you know, on the other hand, we know as, um, as, uh, as teachers, as instructors, that um, courses remotely or courses online don't have the same uh, impact on students. Uh, students aren't happy with it. Um, hmm. I mean, there's, you know, certainly there can be a luxury to just doing something from your home, but uh, at the same time, I think there's a lot of social interaction missing and a lot of physical interaction missing. I think we undervalue the importance of physical interactions in society. Um, so I think as instructors, we recognize that there's certain things that should happen, certain kinds of discussions that happen in the classroom that are valuable to um, to a liberal arts education, to any education, uh, you know, certainly, uh, I don't I don't know any professor or instructor or graduate uh, 
a student that wishes, or any undergraduate student, that, or any elementary school student that wishes for this to go on. I, I, nobody wants this to be the, the new normal. Um, yeah. But I, you know, there's like a few things we may have learned that are helpful, but at the same time, I, I think everybody's waiting for a return to normalcy, whatever that looks like. Um, and hopefully the new normal is new. Like I, I think one of the fears I have is that we go back and things are the same as they were before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if nothing else from this current moment, whether it's um, you know the protest, the protests in the streets, or the staying at home, I think we or the lessons of the public health lessons of dealing with a with a menacing virus. I think if nothing else, you know things shouldn't go back to the way they were. I think we were learning a huge lesson here. Mm-hmm. It feels like we're living yeah. in a film. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And the lessons that we can learn from it, I I wonder. I guess this touches on like what it's looked like for different people. Like a lot of people are out of work. A lot of people ended up, um, yeah, like our, our unemployment rates have skyrocketed and mm-hmm. rates that we never seen before. And like, what does it mean to transition for everyone? Right. And it makes me think about your research and like, in terms of, I, I guess when we think about undocumented, uh, migrants who are working, whether they're working in, uh, you know, the fields or whether they're doing other types of work, they've like been, it's like been agreed upon by everybody. Like they were considered essential workers, but then there was also a lot of concessions given to farmers. It seems like that president Trump wanted to make by allowing them to pay their workers less. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I wonder I don't know if, what you think about that in terms of the the kinds of things that are transitioning for us versus that population, as well as maybe even seeing what kind of increased and additional vulnerabilities that they might be seeing because of legislation that wants to sort of make it easier for everybody else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a tricky question. I, th- I do think um, they are considered essential in many ways, but again, I think their working environments have not changed. I mean, I... Right. We know we now we know that in addition to meat processing facilities, that farms are um, an area where we're seeing hotspots around the country where people, because they have to take buses to get to work, or because of their living conditions, um, and certainly because of their their designation as essential employees who have to keep working often without any protective gear. Um, you know, yeah, they they are at much higher risk of exposure to anything. Um, which probably isn't terribly surprising. Uh, I think on the larger scale, though, I think to Americans or people around the world, not just Americans, people around the world are recognizing the fragility of our sort of capitalist system. I, I really feel mm-hmm. like it's hit home in new ways, not just for the farm workers, but I think for even white collar workers who have had to stay home or who have been furloughed, they're feeling now how unstable the basis of our economy is. And it's unstable because of the exploitability that we've built into it. And as soon as certain people aren't able to pay their mortgages or their rents or feed their families, the whole thing collapses. And I think we're just barely starting to see that. So we know now that there's been a, there's been a big rise in evictions, for example, right? And that's, we're just seeing the, way, the first wave of that right now. Um, but I, I, I feel like as a, as a society, we're seeing the fragility of that economic system and that labor system, especially um, firsthand right now. Uh, I mean, if a third of Americans are out of work, what is, well, I don't know if that's, that's, a, that's not a good figure, but about 30% unemployment this month, right? right. So 
you know, what does that mean? It means it's touching everybody and everybody's sort of thinking about the kinds of jobs they have and the stability that comes with it. Um, and, um, you know, that it, it's a potentially, uh, potentially it could be a, mov- a moment for a revolutionary change of some sort um, or complacency to kind of depends on what happens next. And I think right. some of that anxiety is again, what we're seeing in the streets right now. I think people's frustration is definitely about police violence. There's no doubt about that, but I think there's a lot of other things going on, a lot of underlying uncertainties and anxieties and rifts and, um, you know, dissatisfaction with, with their position in, in the social hierarchy that is coming mm-hmm. forward as well. Yeah. Right? And when you think about, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess like when you think about the entirety of the structure that we're talking about, it's like, right. Um, police brutality, mass incarceration, all the things that may impact only certain groups of our population. But then we also have the fact that people are out of work. Maybe there's less Mm -hmm. opportunities for personal and economic and professional advancement. And one of the things I thought was interesting was um, a a student from the grad program here was talking about some of their experiences with uh, protesting in Tampa and Mm -hmm. near the university area. And I thought it was interesting that they noted that um, the police were mainly defending the property of like businesses like Walmart and Target and a few others. And the small businesses were the ones that were most affected, mainly because the police weren't there and the police weren't there in force. And I think that's another thing is like when we think about, I guess, this whole structure, it also does privilege money and it privileges Mm -hmm. those corporations that want protection and Ultimately, in some ways, like the police are the protectors of private property over a lot of other things, over people and over the good of a community, it seems like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and to to sort of build on that, I think the the pandemic showed us that that's what it's really about, too, right? Reopening economies is more important than, than protecting lives. Now, I am not the person to say we're looking for no circulation of the virus to begin our lives again. I, I know that there's a there's a there's a threshold, there's a point that is sort of ideal, but we never reach that ideal point. And I think that's the consensus right now is right, you know, we're just kind of playing loosely at this point with with the virus and people's lives in the interests of business, right? Essentially in the interests of the economy. Um, and that's that's striking and and kind of goes back to what you're saying that the the um often the larger goal of the government or certainly the current federal administration has been to protect business or to protect the economy over, over lives and certainly over the lives of people who are marginalized. I think that's really clear. And I think a lot of people see that now. And I I hope that people see that more clearly now because they're directly affected and they're witnessing history firsthand in that way. Um, Of course, it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes it ends up pitting groups against each other. Right. And you see that happening as well. Um, but I, I do think it's, I think just to kind of, to link those two events together again, it, it is striking the amount of resources that are being deployed right now to control populations who are in some form of rebellion, hmm. um, peaceful even, uh, right. not always, but often, and compare that to the response to the, to the pandemic and, um, the utter lack of willingness to deploy any kind of resources in that setting, hmm. uh, really hmm. says a lot. Wow. It's like resources are deployed just to put people back into their, I don't know, 
cages, I guess, for lack of a better, like, yeah. Yeah. Back in their place, their social place. Right. I think that's, I think that's happening really clearly and people are seeing that and that's, that's outrageous too, how you can not deploy the national guard to, to even, I mean, to even test people, Mm um, for this virus. And I know there's reasons why they're not, there's beyond that, there's reasons why covering up numbers is very helpful, but, um, you know, just the, the utter lack of willingness to deploy resources for that situation and save lives mm-hmm. and instead use them to, uh, yeah, forcefully, militarily put people in their place, which is right. what we're seeing right now. Yeah. It, it almost reminds me of, at least for a second, about like um, the hurricane striking Puerto Rico and mm-hmm. the president's response. Like, first of all, questioning, like, saying that Puerto Rico is, like, not even linked to the U.S., so there's, like, a lack of understanding of that. But also, yeah, just prioritizing and maybe minimizing the importance of utilizing federal resources for helping people, whether it's through providing, like, direct aid and assistance through something like a tragedy, like a hurricane versus a pandemic, which... They're all pretty, yeah, I think they right. all sort of seem to scream the same thing, which is that there's a sort of a an unwillingness to really use federal resources for helping people, yeah, yeah, and just p- putting the onus of responsibility on individuals and can the mm-hmm. p- public good becomes the marketplace instead of things like safety or or public health, right? I mean, it's just right. a displacement of priorities, I think that. Again, many people are seeing firsthand now, and you know what they do with that will be quite interesting because um, it's it's ultimately it's a political issue at its mm-hmm. very core. Yeah, it really is. And I um for the next sort of school year that's coming up, um, I don't know how you've sort of been preparing. It, it looks like USF has released exactly how they're planning to do it, and I guess like by the time Thanksgiving hits, everything's online, but that's only like a week of school left, um, but everything would, seems to be going back to normal. I would be cautious in interpreting it that way. Um, right. I think there's also a, another message that's sort of underlying some of this. It's not contradictory, but I think it, mm-hmm. it's important to note that um, there, are, there are priorities being set for which classes will be held face-to-face mm-hmm. and in person. So there's, I wouldn't make an assumption right now that things are back to normal. Um, right. I think uh, I think there's two things going on here. I think one is um, many universities have seen the benefits of uh, planning for a essentially a shorter semester, um, mm. not because it's shorter, but because people's um, travel plans around Thanksgiving time might um, you know facilitate the virus spread. So I think I think there's something going on there about the schedule. So on the one level, there's a scheduling issue, which is basically front loading a lot of material. Sure, there's one more semester, uh, one more week of classes after that. Um, but essentially, what they're saying is you're going to shorten the semester. But then there's another layer, which is um, they're currently strategizing, not just at USF, but at lots of places, which courses need to be held on 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 campus in in person. So mm-hmm. I think um, it would be safe to sort of expect another announcement of that. And I think all along, a lot of those, a lot of us who have been um, you know, who, who knows something about viruses and public health and, and who are generally a little more cautious um, have been thinking that planning for uh, remote instruction is probably a good idea. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. Um, thinking about what 
people hope to get out of you know university experience students and mm -hmm. um, remote instruction sort of being in in conflict to the experience people expect to get in a university setting especially like freshmen who are sure. coming to this for the first time and I guess it speaks to I guess I'm thinking about the um, the seniors and the people who graduated this mm -hmm. you know last semester and it just seems like everything's geared towards in-person being in really large gatherings that um, it's just what it means, I guess, to like change things and tailor it towards maybe remote instruction and remote meetings will be interesting just because everything's yeah. already set up for face-to-face -face interactions and people feel like they missed out on, you know, getting to graduate. Mm -hmm. Like that's such a huge, you know, it's huge. thing in people's lives yeah yeah and i mean a lot of the a lot of the undocumented uh folks i work with graduated and to them it was like uh, one of them described it as like this double blow because they mm -hmm. you know they never even really knew they could go to college and then they went to college and then they graduated and then they went to graduate school and then they were getting mm -hmm. their graduate degree um last month and just feeling like it was all kind of anticlimactic at some point right it was just sort mm -hmm. of like you know, there was no celebration. Her family couldn't even be there because they were in another state. Um, just feeling like you had, you'd been the first in your family to do something and it, it couldn't even be celebrated. I mean, it was really, it was like yeah. doubly tragic, uh, not just for her, but for a lot of students who, for whom this is a major milestone, whether right. it's graduate or undergraduate degree or a high school degree. You know, I think for a lot of students, mm -hmm. they kind of, they kind of got robbed of that experience. Uh, I think there's a lot of understanding on why that is, but um, but it certainly is a generation uh, of graduates that um, that is having a whole different experience about yeah. school. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's and definitely. In, in terms of, um, I guess, your research, I guess, like what kind of uh, like anthropology would you say that you're involved in? Because I know that you mm -hmm. work in like legal anthropology and mm -hmm. migrant health. And I guess um, like I've, I've been really fascinated by like legal anthropology and some of the articles you've written regarding that, because I, I think when it comes more to that, I, I personally feel like I'm sort of lacking in that. And so I think that's part like mm -hmm. a big reason why I think it's really interesting because there's a lot of things when it comes to the legal system that, would benefit a person to know in order to navigate it and to be able to study it, especially as an anthropologist. And I don't know how you've, you could explain like how you sort of got into it, what kind of sure. like questions you sort of approach that with it and maybe even how you define that field for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the, the one way I sort of approach it is, you know, when people hear law or policy, it sounds kind of boring and dull and, and bureaucratic and, um, like something that's you know written on paper and then is dusty on some bookshelf somewhere. Mm. And um, the way I like to think about law, and I think the way a lot of uh, there's a whole field called you know uh, law and society or, or law and social sciences, um, which doesn't which takes a, a social science approach to law. And essentially, what it's saying is that the law is law is a living entity in many ways that it's um, mm. it's constantly changing. Um, and most importantly, it is interpreted by and affects groups in different ways, right? So I think one misconception about law and policy as well is that it, um, you know, that there's, again, there's something black and white and somehow that gets translated into 
for example, equal treatment. And um, it, it turns out that's not all the case, that um, the law is incredibly open to interpretation, incredibly open to bias. Um, you can take the same three or four words of a legal statute and apply it in different ways. And I think that's what's fascinating to social scientists is the fact that um, what appears to be a neutral uh, institution is actually not at all that. And um, that it's historically been used to marginalize people, currently is used to marginalize people. Um, it benefits some groups and entities and institutions over others. And I think that's ultimately where the interest in law and policy comes from for an anthropologist or for a social scientist in general. So you can take a specific law and trace its effects, right? So one of the one of the laws I've looked at is um, the Affordable Care Act, which by you know by all measures was meant to be inclusive and progressive, and um, well, not by all measures. We we know historically that it kind of came out of an idea of um, including the private sector, of of pr prioritizing the private sector. It had nothing to do right. with universal health care. It had to do with uh, privileging, you know, certain insurance companies ultimately. And so, you know, you could take a law like that, that on its surface seems very progressive and very fair and very inclusive and look at how it sort of uh, applied differently to different populations and who was disadvantaged and who wasn't. Um, and what other social effects did it cause? You know, so um, a couple of things that we mentioned in the book we wrote on the Affordable Care Act, uh, the book that I co-edited with Jessica Mulligan, um, you know, a couple of things we mentioned is that, you know, it just sort of intensified this American idea about personal responsibility, about mm -hmm. individuals being uh, responsible for their own health care. So it, it was kind of the opposite of universal health care, because it said, if you as a person don't take responsibility, we're going to fine you. Right. It's not the same thing as including people in a universal system. It also increased things like like accountability and auditing cultures and things like that that are um, sort of systems of the state to monitor people. Um, so it had really interesting effects. So you can do that with law and policy mm -hmm. and the analysis thereof. You could take a certain law and do that. Or you could look at systemic issues. So, you know, one issue we've been talking about is is police violence, right? And so you can look at you can look at and in fact a large number of law and society scholars look at policing. Policing right. is like probably the number one issue that people look at in this field. Um, the second maybe is, is sort of judicial issues around jurors and judges and sentencing and so forth. So there's some really interesting things that kind of come up there when you look um, at different communities in the United States, for example. Uh, and the way that I've looked at this issue, so a lot of my work is actually on policing. It's about immigration, but it's actually about policing and right. falls within that realm. Um, just looking at how um, different communities are policed or, or surveilled um, in, in my case, often in, in border communities where, where the majority population uh, are brown people or are Mexican descent um, Latinx groups that um, are because of their geographic location more uh, vulnerable to policing practices. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you, all of this kind of comes together in an analysis of the law and of, of how you interpret law and policies and the administrators of law, whether those be uh, persons in a police uniform or judges, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's lots of interesting angles. I think that anthropologists and social scientists can look at, right. but, but the first key is just, you know, looking at law as a, as a social construct and, and a historically embedded social construct and playing with that idea. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And, yeah. um, like that practice of sort of tracing a law's effects and like 
on the one hand, I think when people think about the law, it's like, how, what was the intention behind it and what was, what caused it and everything. But a big part of it is the effects of it. And mm -hmm. maybe people who wrote the law didn't have the explicit intention of, let's say like marginalizing a certain group, but sure. if that's the effect, it just seems like that's that, that kind of study would really get to that, which yeah. would then nuance it and everything. Sure. I mean, a lot of studies are about that disconnect, exactly that disconnect. Even laws that are really well-intentioned end up having mm. negative consequences or excluding certain groups, right? right. So, um, yeah, mm. so we, we've seen that in, in healthcare law and other types of places as well. So, yeah. Yeah. What, what's that um, saying? The the road to hell is paved with good intentions. With good intentions, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, it's so, yeah. Yeah, we did a study here in Florida where we looked at dental Medicaid. So it's uh, the state of Florida um, will pay for dental services for children on Medicaid. Mm. And when that law was passed, policymakers thought that was fantastic and they patted themselves on the back for being, you know, so thoughtful and including, uh, including access to, to dental care for, for children who are um, coming from underserved families. And, you know, what we traced was how that law ultimately led to dentists um, not getting paid enough and therefore not wanting to take on any of mm. these children. Um, right. And since most of the children who were disadvantaged were also, for example, Spanish speaking, um, there was another layer of problem why dentists weren't taking them. And so we, we did the study where we looked at how what seemed to be a good law was actually, um, you know, Florida has a, 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 was, was rated by the American Dental Association as a grade of F with wow. uh, dental care access because of this, wow. because they had done something that they thought was really good, but they weren't, you know, as part of the law, they weren't compensating the dentists enough. Um, mm. they were just being too cheap about it and it created this situation that made it actually a lot worse. Wow. So that's yeah. really unintended consequences. Yeah. And there was a lawsuit um, and you know, yeah, that's something anthropologists can help with. Yeah. And I wonder how, um, cause you've also done a lot of research in other places like in Germany. And I, mm -hmm. I wonder if you could sort of touch on like what the research has been like in other countries, whether it what you're doing but also like what the experiences is are with the systems that you've had to deal with and how you've sort of had to adapt to them yeah sure i mean i remember going to germany to do my dissertation research and it was on uh healthcare access for undocumented persons in berlin and every meeting i had with like stakeholders the first thing they would say is like why are you here studying this issue why aren't you back in the united mm -hmm. states where there's 40 million people uninsured like why mm -hmm. what what do you what do you hope to gain by studying germany um, and it was back to those unintended consequences. Uh, ultimately, Germany has a universal health care system, um, mm. but it also it has very strict sort of paperwork requirements uh, such that, um, first of all, there's strict paperwork require requirements so that undocumented people who don't have, literally who don't have papers, um, have a hard time getting into that system. Um, and second, it had another law that prohibited or actually punished uh, medical professionals for treating undocumented persons because it considered that to be a form of aiding them in their um, illegal residency in the country, right? So right. by treating someone who is really sick, you're aiding them in their illegal residency. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the law that I was actually following at the time. And so um, needless to say, a lot of people didn't know about that law. Uh, the law was actually never really utilized. I mean, I've, I've heard of very few of any cases that were pursued under that law. But what it did is it created a, a, an environment of fear for physicians who did know about it. They would say, oh, I don't want to get involved, right? right? So then you have this environment where, this, where the, the state has now outsourced the policing of immigrant bodies to physicians, right? Because the wow. physicians can say, well, 
there's this law and I don't want to get in trouble, right? And therefore I'm not going to treat you. So you, you do see this is another example of how laws kind of play out and the, the impacts it might have on vulnerable populations. So, but in this case, dealing with the German healthcare system, a lot of people just say, well, why are you here? We have a great healthcare system, you know? Right. We're, we're universal, we're inclusive. Uh, and to some degree that's true, um, certainly in comparison to the United States, but um, didn't mean that there weren't other issues happening. So, right. yeah. Wow, that's really incredible. It's like, yeah, the bureaucracy is extended to include physicians who ultimately don't want to, you know, suffer penalties yeah. by treating someone that, I guess, the government sort of decided would be aiding them right. just by offering them healthcare. Right, yeah. right. So physicians become gatekeepers for immigration policy in a lot of ways, right? And that we see right. that in other places, like for example, where asylum seekers require medical exams, and so. If the state is requiring medical exams, then the, the, the physician who is conducting those medical exams becomes an agent of the state and helps in determining whether or not an asylum seeker or a refugee's case um, mm -hmm. is successful or not. And so there's a lot of ways in which medicine kind of becomes complicit in these sort of state activities, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to immigration. And so this right. is just another example of that. Wow. And um, your book, Borders of Belonging, be begins with the story of uh, like... A woman who's giving birth and their child seemed it seemed like you know they wouldn't allow the father to be on the birth certificate because he didn't have his id at the time but as soon as he came back with it supposedly they did it but then they later found out on the birth certificate itself it looked like someone had whited out mm -hmm. his name and it's it's incredible because it's sort of another case of like seemingly like healthcare or public health like sector at least in a certain place being sort of a gatekeeper in some ways, but ultimately actively mm -hmm. sort of shielding a child from ultimately having its father on its birth certificate. I don't, I don't know if you could speak yeah. to that because that seemed like a really sure. incredible sort of case. Yeah. And in this case, the father was a U.S. citizen. So, you know, there would have yeah. been resources attached to that, um, to that declaration of parentage and so forth. So, um, you know, I mean, it, it seems like, okay, maybe it was a mistake. Maybe it was, maybe somebody made an error. Maybe, maybe it wasn't really wide out. Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, maybe the person right. who filled it out didn't know right. But this is exactly how um, these kinds of entitled, disentitlements work, right? And to get back mm -hmm. to the issue of racism, right? There's, you know, microaggressions work because they're not over, because they're not, they don't seem mm -hmm. to be systematic. They seem to be like, well, maybe it was a, yeah, maybe maybe I did, maybe I heard that wrong, or maybe you know maybe the person just made a mistake. Um, and I think it's the the collection of all of those kinds of of activities that seem small um, that really lead to the big picture of disentitlement that people experience. Um, and of course, when people speak out about it, they're told, "Well, you're overreacting," or "It's you no, know, we have a law in place that protects you from that." And that's not mm -hmm. true, right? Because um, ultimately, it's mm -hmm. the 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 bureaucrats that interface between the law and the people that they serve that are, that have the power to make these kinds of small um, actions that can either help or hinder um, a person in life. And so that's right. a good example of that. Wow. Yeah. That's really yeah. incredible. And yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. I, yeah. I think as we look at sort of everything that's happening right now, it's just, we're seeing a lot of cases of people sort of reacting to the ways that their lives are being hindered or in some ways affected. And and I, th I think that's one of the interesting things about like 
the way people are reacting to like looting and mm -hmm. people setting fires and it's like sort of like you're allowed to be and express your anger in a certain way and if you're stealing then by definition you're sort of taking advantage of the situation and um i don't know it's 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 one of those yeah. things that's it's it's kind of hard to it, it's easy to cast judgment and to say it must be this if this is happening because that's mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. that seems to be going on but i wonder um yeah like what taking a step back and really looking at it um what would it, what would it look like yeah. it's a really cute cat by the way oh <laughs> that's loki he's gonna yeah. come hang out i'm sure <laughs> yeah. um yeah i mean i think the thing about a thing about like um you know police violence is you could get all wrapped up in that specific case you could say you know what exactly happened in Minneapolis? You know, let's look at all the body cameras and look at all the footage, and you know, do an autopsy and find out, you know, where somebody made a mistake. The problem is, and you can do that all day long, and and um, the majority of Americans would participate in that exercise. Um, right. You know, white doesn't matter, political spectrum. They would agree. Okay, something went terribly wrong here. Where people start to break break apart is um, in recognizing it as a systemic issue. Right. The mm -hmm. fact that, um, sure, in this one case, there was this one little mistake made, maybe a huge mistake, I should say. But um, you don't you have to see the broader pattern to understand why people are angry. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not about it's not really about this one person. That's just the, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Right. It's all of the other sort of systemic things that have led mm -hmm. up to this and people recognizing that this is a pattern. Um, and if you get too focused on the one specific case, then, then yeah, of course it's excusable. Just like the bureaucrat that whited out a name, right? You can say, well, yeah. it was probably just a mistake, but it's the systemic issues that I think are key here. Right. And, um, and that people, you know, interpret in different ways, right? Looting, looting is a fascinating, a really mm -hmm. fascinating activity. Um, it's, it's an expression of power by the powerless, right? It's not about, mm -hmm. oh, they're going to go, you know break into the sports store and get some sneakers or something like it's not about that it's about an expression of power for people who don't have power um right. and uh you know interesting things happen when you when you get people in a group and um so it's it's easy to sort of sit back and, and look at it from that perspective and and judge but i think um you're you're missing the history you're missing this the systemic issues and you're missing mm. you know the collective anger um that really drives a lot of that right and something you were touching on a little bit earlier was like the sentiments of like, uh, I guess something that I've been more interested in is how like emotions and the feelings that people have within a certain social group, um, how impactful they are. Cause a lot of the times we, we tend to consider discrimination and racism as being systemic at the same time being invisible. And in a lot of the research I'm doing right now on let's say disability studies, like disabled people are considered like the largest, um, like discriminated against group mm -hmm. because they go places, you know, a lot of places aren't really tailored to wheelchairs or, or what have you. But then at the same time, something that uh, my brother was telling me was how like sort of going to a place like a dentist's office gets a lot of stares and a lot of people mm -hmm. get uncomfortable and, Maybe no one's saying anything, but that discomfort is still palpable. Mm -hmm. And I guess more broadly, in terms of discrimination, I, I can only imagine, or I can imagine like how pervasive that can be in some people's lives. Maybe not everybody's, but to go into a place and to just feel the tension there 
no one ever says anything to you. Maybe people don't even look at you, but you can still feel it. Mm -hmm. And maybe people do stare. And I guess that that element that we often consider to be invisible and something unjustified to sort of react to. I think that's the thing that really is interesting to me yeah. in terms of the, the two ways that we can look at discrimination and systemic racism. Right, right. And as you said, it's it's like, um, how do they say, uh, um, you know, when you see it, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's like, I don't know, I, I guess I'm thinking about like, um, I don't know where that's from. I think that was about discussions of obscenity and like, you know, you kind of know it when you, you, oh. you know it when you see it, like it's right. like you can't label everything that is, uh, you know, offensive you can't you you can't list them on a on a paper black and white but you know it when you see it you know when there's something wrong Um, it's a gut feeling that we have as humans and i think especially for people who are in situations where they are made to feel marginal be feeling marginalized all the time they know it when they see it right they you don't you know i think um i think this is a case where a person's uh experience tells them everything and uh, Mm -hmm. so it's a really good example right um, and that's why inclusive, you know, discussions of inclusive spaces are important, but they uh, sometimes are too surface level because, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, you can have accommodations for people, you can give lip service to diversity and inclusion, but people know, they know it when they see it, mm-hmm. right? They know it mm-hmm. when they see it and they know it when they don't see it. And I right. think that's, that's the other piece of it. Yeah. That's such a good point. Um, yeah. In terms of, I guess your research, like what, mm-hmm. what does it look like moving forward right now? Like what's your, what are you focused on right now? Well, I've got a couple new projects going on um, in Morocco, uh, North mm-hmm. Africa, along with my colleague, Tara Dubell, um, who's worked right. there for a long time. And um, one thing we're, fo- we're focusing on migration, we're looking at migration and gender and religion and a couple of other aspects. But one thing that we're really excited to look at too is, is race. We're looking at how, um, how race is how it's discussed, it's history, it's how it's experienced in, um, in a place like North Africa, where there's pretty clear distinctions between people who view themselves as, you know, African, there's Africans, and then there's Africans, right? I think there's, um, there's, uh, people have talked about this in a number of different settings, um, about how there's like, other others and real others, and you know, how, how there's nuances to this idea of of discrimination and uh, race and ethnicity. Um, yeah. Certainly, I've seen it in places like Germany. I, uh, certainly, we can talk about it here in the U.S. context in different populations, but kind of understanding some of those nuances of how that operates in a different setting mm. is something we're excited to look at as well. Yeah. yeah. And in the context of migration, especially. Yeah, that definitely yeah. is interesting. And I guess it makes me think about something, which is that, you know, how do we view diversity? How do we view culture and cultural diversity? I think there's an assumption here in the U.S. that we have a culturally diverse populace, and I think it's I think that's less true than people really think it is. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. just because a person looks different, we imagine that they have a different culture, but that's not necessarily mm-hmm. true. Like, they have a different cultural experience, yeah. embodied experience, but ultimately, how we define culture seems very surface level itself and yeah yeah. it does i mean and it's linked to issues of things like citizenship and language and uh, other things as well so um when we talk about race and ethnicity there's all these other layers you know and i think a really good example is um most americans think that um you know people who are latinx or uh, hispanic uh, latino 
are 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 immigrant origin. Either they're immigrants themselves or they're first or second generation, and that's absolutely not true. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a, a linking of ideas around citizenship, around race, ethnicity, and nationality, uh, language, certainly language. All these things get all kind of tied up together to produce othering sort of practices. Um, and a lack of recognition that people are, you know, born and raised in the United States generations deep and that, yeah. you know, even language that Spanish is a language of the United States. There's no question mm -hmm. about that. It, it cons consistently gets classified as a foreign language, even in our own university. Um, it's a world language. Yeah. It's a foreign language. And it's not. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a native language for Americans. Mm -hmm. Right. So things like that um, get wrapped up. In, in other discussions of race and ethnicity really conveniently, right? And I think that's that's another piece that people don't talk about very much. Yeah, that's such a good point, yeah. especially considering like, like I've met families who like they trace their origins to like when land still belonged to like, you know, Spain, like it, it wasn't mm -hmm. even, you know, belonging to the US, like they their mm -hmm. families pre like preceded that and Right. That's so interesting because it's like, how do we define legitimacy? Is it because yeah. of who purchased the land and are settlers from like the colonies who came on the land more legitimate than the people who are already there? And then right. that you push that back even farther, you know, thinking about Native Americans and like, how do we define like true citizenship or like right. pure, unadulterated, you know, American? <laughs> like, how do we define that? There's no such thing, and uh, you know, but but it's but it's yeah. not inconsequential, right? It's not it's yeah. not um, trivial because it is linked to things like citizen citizenship rights and property ownership and and voting rights and so forth. Um, and I, I know you mm -hmm. teach cultural anthropology. You've probably used some of these films in your class too, where you see some really clear, you know, census practices and Supreme Court decisions that define not just citizenship but define whiteness as as the as the criteria for citizenship. And that's changed over time. And so, you know, this is part of that process of, of legitimizing certain people's Americanness over others. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's so true. Um, so I don't know if you have like any sort of last comments, words, or sort of thoughts that you'd like to share. Wow, that's a lot of pressure. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't. I mean, it's just we're living in an interesting moment. It's everything's moving right now. It will be yeah. so interesting to look back and this will be, you know, a chapter in history books, 2020. Um, I think many of us have not, um, you know, it's, it's just time full of, of, of anxieties and tensions. And I, it's really, it's really interesting to see what's going to happen in the coming weeks and months, really. Um, yeah. And to see if, if, if we restructure some things in our society or not, I think, I think it could go either way. I think the, um, the fractures and ruptures in society have been pretty evident. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what do we do with them now? It's an election right. year. You know, things are supposed to get, quote unquote, back to normal at some point. People are supposed to get back to work at some point. But what do we do with these with these with these fractures and ruptures? Um, and that's where anthropology comes in, because that's what we do best as we look at fractures and ruptures and, um, you know, see mm -hmm. what's really happening and um, right. how things play out. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that sounds really awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate getting to talk to you. Sure. Likewise. Likewise. Thanks for inviting me.